Welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. Dr. Susan Natali is an Arctic ecologist who studies the effect of permafrost thaw and wildfires on North American ecosystems, the Arctic population, and the global climate. To develop ideas and ways to address permafrost thaw, Dr. Natali's team uses location technology, maps, and modeling to bring together experts in climate science and environmental justice to communicate their findings with Northern residents and the world. For people who aren't used to looking at graphs, I feel like map is an amazing way to share data because maps are part of our lives, connecting people who may live in very different places. Many people haven't had the opportunity to be in the Arctic, and so it's just really hard to understand a place that's so far away. But once you can see it on a map and you can like zoom into it, it it just all of a sudden you become really connected to that place. It becomes a part of you. Esri scientist Dr. Sheridan Moore investigates how mapping and analytics are playing a key role in Arctic ecology and climate science. Hi, Sue, and welcome to Esri and the Science of Where podcast. Hi, Sheridan. It's nice to be here. You are a renowned Arctic scientist. So why is the Arctic central to addressing climate change? So the Arctic is important critically important um, for climate change and for the functioning of the Earth system for a number of reasons. The Arctic is is covered in ice. The North is is, is, um, or was an ice-filled place. And when the ice melts, um, that darker sea is now exposed and um, that dark dark water absorbs more of the sun's energy. And so this is causing more of this earth's sun's energy to be absorbed by the earth. And so um, that's causing additional warming, particularly in the Arctic. So the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the planet. And sort of this albedo effect is one of the main reasons. Um, The other really important part of the Arctic for everyone on the planet is the melting of land ice. So the Greenland ice sheet, um, there's also important land ice um, down at the other pole, but the loss of the Greenland ice sheet can contribute, you know, anywhere to seven meters of, of sea level rise for the planet. And so this is another really important component. And then I say the third one is thawing permafrost. And I think that's the one that people think less about and um, partly because it's harder to see. So permafrost is frozen ground. And you you know, you can't see thawing permafrost as easily as you can see the loss of sea ice, but thawing permafrost is really important for a number of reasons. It's both for the people who live in the Arctic and also for everyone on the planet. One of the big projects you are working on is called the Permafrost Pathways Initiative. This brings together leading experts in climate science, policy action, and environmental justice, all of whom work together to develop adaptation and mitigation strategies to address permafrost and its thaw. Could you tell us more about the Permafrost Pathways Initiative? So permafrost is permanently frozen ground. It's officially defined as ground that stays below zero degrees Celsius for two or more consecutive years. So in in the north, the surface of the ground will thaw in the summertime, um, but below that is permafrost, and that permafrost stays frozen year-round. But it can contain anything. You know, it's, it's, it's soil, it's organic material, it's dead animals, it's partially decomposed plants. Um, and so it's just a variety of substrates and that have been forming for many, many thousands of years. So the 
Permafrost Pathways Initiative is aiming to address the impacts of permafrost thaw, both the regional impacts. So how does permafrost thaw impacting the Arctic and then also the global implications of that? And so we're addressing this in a number of different ways. One of the barriers, I'd say, to sort of understanding the impacts of permafrost thaw is limitations in the science. The important role of permafrost on our global climate is because it stores a lot of carbon. Um, That carbon is in the form of organic matter. And when that permafrost thaws, microbes can break down that carbon, release it into the atmosphere as greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, and methane. So a big question is, you know, when will the permafrost thaw and how much of these greenhouse gases will come out of thawing permafrost and what does that mean for our global climate? So a big part of permafrost pathways is understanding you know, increasing monitoring of greenhouse gases across the Arctic, and then also working on our models so that we can have a better understanding of what this means for our future. And so because permafrost can contain a lot of ice in the ground when that ice melts, the ground can collapse. And that sort of collapsing ground is why permafrost and the loss of permafrost is really important for people who live in the north. And so another part of this project is understanding the local impacts of permafrost thaw. What does that mean for the people who are living on permafrost? And then taking all of this knowledge and using this to help guide decision-making, both related to global response to climate change in terms of mitigating or reducing our fossil fuel emissions, as well as understanding you know, the steps that we need to take and to sort of use this science to sort of facilitate the steps to adapt and to respond to permafrost thaw and other climate hazards that are happening in the North. Could you explain how understanding permafrost thaw will help the public to take climate action? Greenhouse gases that will come out of permafrost once it thaws are not fully accounted for in our global carbon budget. So what does that mean? So, you know, the international community decided we need to stay, you know, well below two degrees Celsius to keep our climate under control. This was the Paris Agreement, right? And so as part of that, countries, you know, across the planet are are making commitments to reduce their fossil fuel emissions. And then we can, you know, calculate a budget. How how close are we to two degrees Celsius? What are the actions we need to take to, you know, and maybe two degrees Celsius, you know, isn't the right target. Maybe it's 1.5 degrees Celsius. The emissions from permafrost could be on par with some major greenhouse gas emitting nations, but it's not fully being accounted for in that bookkeeping. So what this means is we think we have the amount of carbon and greenhouse gases that we think we can release to stay to below two degrees Celsius. Some part of that budget is going to be used up by permafrost. And so recently, you know, it has been working its way into accounting, into models, um, but it's really quite an underestimate. And part of the reason for that is just because we need this the science and the measurements and the processes that we know that are happening that can speed up permafrost thaw, that can result in increased emissions to get those into the models that are used in the sort of policy decision-making. And so, so what that means is that we need to ramp up our ambition quite a bit 
more if we want to stay below 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. And seeing the changes that are already happening at 1 degree Celsius, we definitely want to make that happen. And I know that sounds like a really bad news story, but I always I always like to think about it um, like this, which is that, you know, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane, they're globally mixed. And so, you know, if we do nothing and we continue reducing fossil fuels at a very high rate, we're going to get more coming out from permafrost. But the more and the faster that we reduce our emissions elsewhere on the planet, we actually can protect permafrost by doing that. We can, our actions that we take no matter where you are on the planet can actually reduce the amount of permafrost that can thaw and it can keep the carbon that's in the permafrost frozen. And then we won't have, you know, as much additional greenhouse gases coming out of the permafrost region. The health of permafrost also affects the people who live in the region. What have you seen and experienced in terms of this? Permafrost can contain different amounts of ice and when the ice and permafrost melts, the ground collapses. That can be um, a relatively subtle collapsing. It can be a quite extreme, you know, where whole sides of a cliff goes tumbling down. But even the kind of subtle sinking of the permafrost, if your house is on permafrost, um, that's really problematic. Um, that permafrost thaw can also contribute to and be impacted by other processes. So permafrost thaw um, can lead to more erosion along rivers and along coastal areas. That erosion can in turn cause more permafrost thaw. The sinking of the ground can lead to flooding. And again, this flooding can exacerbate permafrost thaw. There, there's actually, um, there's a Yupik word called ushtek. And this is a word that describes the combined and sort of impacts and feedbacks between permafrost thaw, flooding, and erosion. It's a sort of catastrophic ground collapse that's happening. And so it's impacting people in all, all sorts of ways. I mean, people are having to jack their homes up uh, more frequently. They're having to move their homes because of this. Um, there's shifts and the movement of animals and resources that are available, um, plants um, that are very important for subsistence resources, so important berries, um, are no longer growing in the places they were growing because the ground collapsed. Um, it's harder to go across the landscape. It's harder to get out to places for people to go hunting and to go fishing. And this permafrost thaw, again, like it's not happening in a bubble. It's also happening at the same time that sea ice is being lost and you're getting rain events in the winter time. And so there's multiple kind of interacting changes that are happening in the Arctic that are really, um, creating increasingly hazardous conditions. You are working with a very diverse group of people in the Arctic. How does mapping help bridge the gaps? We often speak different language than, than everybody, right? There's jargon in every field. Um, and then we're working in Yupik communities. There's a lot of folks there whose, you know, first language is Yupik. And so we, when I, when we go to visit a community, we always bring maps and it just Maps are incredible because when a map is on a table, everybody wants to come. <laughs> everybody comes around the table and everybody starts talking. I feel like any 
any language, any cultural or any, you know, science, non-scientist divisions go away and people start talking about the changes that are happening and terminology that I may use as a scientist, you can kind of just point to a feature and you can, you know, sort of communicate what is that terminology for that type of land in Yupik or in, in, in common, you know, in, in everyday English. And so the, you know, bringing a map, you, you can have conversations about space and also conversations about time and how the land is changing. What are the challenges in mapping in the Arctic? Why is it so difficult? The Arctic in general, there's just sort of monitoring on the ground and from space is quite a bit more sparse. So um, one of the challenges with satellite data in northern regions is that some satellite data require light and the Arctic is dark for half of the year. And even during the summertime, um, some regions, the Arctic are really cloudy. And so we often have very limited data. So we or limited spatial data and particularly limited spatial data over time. So, you know, we're really wanting to use satellite data to look at changes over time or to get past rates of change. Our partners um, and some of the communities that we work with have expressed they really need sort of documentation of past rates of change, even though they know the changes that are happening. Um, there's not a lot of instrumentation on the ground and it's sometimes really challenging to get, you know, multiple time series of change using satellite data just because it's such it's so limited. How do maps reach a broader audience and why is that so important? For people who aren't used to looking at graphs, I feel like map is an amazing way to share data because maps are part of our lives, connecting people who may live in very different places. So, you know, I work in the Arctic and many people haven't had the opportunity to be in the Arctic. And so it's just really hard to understand a place that's so far away. But once you can see it on a map and you can like zoom into it, it it just all of a sudden you become really connected to that place. It becomes a part of you. Sue, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Dr. Susan Natali for explaining the crucial role Arctic science plays in informing global climate action. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.